Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Lamp. I'm your host, James Lampkin. And my guest today is Pastor Ricardo Payne. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, sir. Uh, it's, it's, it's always great to talk to people who, you know, who are in the community of big help. And you've been a big help to me and my family. So it's, it's truly an honor. And I thank you for, one, being so much of a help to us. And two, just taking the time to do this. Well, it's my pleasure, sir, to serve you and your family and others. And that let me be very clear that everybody can serve. I'm not doing anything that you and your family have not done uh, for our community that's under-resourced and that are always thankful for the graciousness of God's people. So I appreciate you as well. So let me let me ask you, how did you, how did you come to the... Well, I'm going to ask the question and you can answer it, and, but I think I know where it's going to go. How did you come to the de decision to serve? Okay, good. Thank you. That's a fair question. Uh, I grew up in the projects in eastern North Carolina, a town of less than 10,000. We call it Little Washington, North Carolina. And I learned by example from my mother. Uh, by, I mentioned we grew up in the projects. Uh, we walked to everything. We did not have a car until we were, until I was rather, about uh, 14, 15 years old. And I noticed how my mother, no matter what the needs were in the community, and particularly in the Deep South, if someone were to have died or were deceased, uh, they would put a reef on the outside of the door, and that let the community know that someone has, in fact, died in that family. And my mother was always the first one, even with my brothers and my sisters, the first one there trying to help somebody. I remember playing football and basketball and baseball, and I would say to my mama that this particular athlete did not have anything to eat, though we had fried chicken and mama cooked collard greens or croakers and greens, a type of bone fish that was a freshwater fish. And she would always give it her best to help somebody. So that then became something that I tried to model myself after. Did she ever verbalize to you these things like you be, you need to be helped to your community or just you know, seeing her do it? Major. Just seeing her do it, sir, by her example. As I said, we were very, very poor. Uh, and what does that mean? Uh, for those that may know, uh, welfare cheese and chopped meat. Uh, we were on subsistence. Uh, all welfare cheese was it was uh, better than Velveeta cheese and Cracker Barrel cheese. Chopped meat was nothing more than a harbinger of spam. It was a mix of everything left from the hog. They put it in a can and they call it chopped meat. And we grew up on that. We had, I did not know until I was probably 15 or 16 that eggs came from a chicken because mm. we had powdered eggs. And when my mama mix them up in the frying pan, I didn't know that you go to the egg house to get eggs because we couldn't afford to buy them. And all we had was what we had but we had a lot of love and a lot of example uh, by my mother, by my other uh, family members, uh, my aunt Helen, uh, who's since deceased too, she was from Suffolk, Virginia, 
uh, she was a school teacher for over 40 something years. And I remember her coming home during the holidays. It was always a great time, holidays, 4th of July, Memorial Day weekend, Labor Day weekend. She would Christmas, she would come home and bring my mother several bags of groceries. We only ate meat once a month, once a month. And that was at the end of the month when we got uh, and received our, at that time, uh, welfare uh, stamps. And then we would get, mama would get the check, go buy food. And we only had meat once a month. Uh, we grew up on fat bag, uh, being well, fat bag and, uh, butter beans. That that's what we grew up on. But even in the midst of all of that, my mother always found a way to give her best. And she always would say this. She did say, never give anyone something that you do not want to receive. Wow. No matter how difficult things were, mama said, don't give them at that time. And this may be before your time. Uh, people used to eat uh, chicken feet, uh, chicken backs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, getting the, uh, the breast and the legs and the thigh. I didn't know what dark meat and white meat was until I was well into my thirties and forties because mm -hmm. we just ate whatever we got on the table we were thankful for it. Mm. Let's fast forward a little bit because you actually attended West Point. Yes, how, did that, how did that come about? Well, uh, one of my grade school teachers, Mr. Horace Cowell, uh, followed me from, we call it uh, junior high school. I think up here, up north, they call it middle school. He <laughs> followed my career uh, academically and athletically and civically uh, from like seventh or eighth grade till I was a senior in high school. And by the grace of God, I was able to perform well in all of those areas and which was definitely an anomaly uh, for us, particularly in the deep South, to have an African-American doing all of that. Uh, I was able to do well academically. Uh, I maxed my IQ test. I did well, you know, in all my other student uh, related activities, but he just followed me, made a recommendation to a recruiter because many of the uh, officers, they often go back to their hometown. And if they see someone who's performing well, uh, they in turn extend an offer uh, to the individual to go to uh, the school. How did you know it was the right decision to attend the West Point? Uh, I did not really know it was the right decision based on my options. Uh, I mentioned uh, athletically, uh, I played football, basketball, and baseball and did well in all of it. So for basketball, I was small uh, for my size for basketball, but in baseball and football, I did well. Uh, the other schools, you know, they offered the athletic scholarship. I did not have uh, a father or an uncle or even a pastor that could navigate those choppy waters in athletics. Often, you're, often all you're trying to do is just, you know, go to school. And so when they said, well, hey, you can go to school for free and we'll pay this, we'll pay that. And the last thing I remember, because uh, my father was killed in Vietnam uh, when I was nine, last thing he said, he says, get your education, or as he would say, and at that time, education, and take care of your mother. Hmm. 
So all the other things I could have done as a youngster, uh, I wasn't interested in that because that was the last thing he said to me. And as I mentioned, uh, he was killed in action in Vietnam. Hmm. Because he was actually killed in the military, did that give you any reservations about joining? Not even a bit. Not, wow. not even a bit, you know, because now with our country, with all of the things that are going on, uh, there, there's, there's a, a, to me, a, a sore lack of patriotism, uh, particularly, and I keep going back to the deep South. Many people who were going into the military went because of their parents or their uncles or their cousins. And that was my way out. Mm. Uh, you know, my, my whole life was based upon, sir, making 35 cents an hour. I remember my first job, 35 cents an hour. That's how, that's how much I made. And then I ended up going to the local McDonald's and not that I'm doing a plug for them, but that's, I worked at the <laughs> McDonald's on highway 17 and I was making 95 cents an hour. 95 cents an hour, I drove two school buses and an activity bus for $2.50 a trip on the activity bus. The school buses, I think I was getting like 10 or $15 every two weeks. So work and, and those work ethics, those are the things that I learned and gleaned from my mother. Uh, she used to walk to work until we got a car. As I mentioned, uh, I was about 15, 16 years old before she even got her first vehicle. Mm. I want to back up to something to a word you used that was really interesting. You used the word patriotism. Yes, sir. I want to be completely honest. Yes. I don't hear black people use that word often. Yes. Would, but now I, I will say, I, did, so did you consider yourself patriotic? I did. That was the reason as you asked me about the fact that my father was killed in service. See, I was uh, working and serving in the local church. St. Paul's Episcopal Church is an acolyte. Uh, and they call St. Paul's Episcopal Church, you know, a, a step below uh, the Catholic Church. Now, we can get into ecclesiastical discussions later. But point being, though, a lot of the people, because we all lived in the projects together, their relatives were killed during the Vietnam era. So there was a badge of honor of such to go and serve your country your country, people say, I don't like America, then leave. If you don't want to be here, leave. That's the way I look at that. Somebody else went and fought in foreign wars on our behalf so that we can enjoy the fruit and the vestiges of what we're doing. I'm, I'm not for this all, everybody love everybody. That's not true. Until you're prepared to die for something you believe in, all this is just a bunch of talk, sir. Hmm. That's the way I look at it. And that, that's what I grew up with. And seeing that, I saw a lot of families in my community at Oak Press Projects. It's still there. Whenever I go home, I go back just to get a good look again to say, you know what? God's been mighty good to me. And hmm. I have to thank him for what he's done in my life. But patriotism is lost. Every, our, comp our company, our country has become fractioned. Everybody has rights. No, everybody has responsibilities. That's the way I view it.
Okay, let me ask you this, because the, the patriotism thing is really interesting to me. We both know the history of this country. It hasn't been kind to Black people at all. Correct. So for you, how were you able to remain patriotic? Because I'm going to be honest, I was in the military, but I was not patriotic. I knew I had a job to do, and I knew I took an oath. So I would definitely protect and defend the country with all my heart, even if it meant death, but I wasn't patriotic. Okay. So how were you able to, how were you able to be in that space of being patriotic? Patriot patriotism to me is that I looked at what the country offered me, uh, you know, coming out of the uh, back of field of little Washington and growing up as I did and seeing the things that were happening then I ended up uh, going off to school at Fort Bend Harrison and then getting an assignment to the Washington, D.C. area. And there was a young lady, uh, well, she was an older lady, but Miss Ma Barrett, she's since deceased. And I remember her saying to me, she said, you're a nice young man and this isn't that. I said, thank you, Miss Barrett. She said, well, all you need to do is keep your nose clean. She said, you can go a long ways. So from that, I went from Alexandria to the Pentagon, the White House, back to the Department of Defense. I was at the top of my game as a soldier. And I saw how people respected me as a soldier. Yes, I know the history and I'm well aware of what the Tuskegee Airmen, I, I understand all of that. I got that. However, I can't live on that to determine what I'm doing today. And I don't. Okay. I address it straight on. Now, someone asks, you know, inappropriately, oh, I will, I'll address them, but I was in, the, you know, the half a percent of a half a percent of the type of career space I was in, which caused me to see America through a different lens. And, and if we really want to tell the story, we're going, as my mother used to say, let's tell it right. Uh, every country and every group of people have had challenges. Mm -hmm. But but my thing is, I said, you know, I'm going to keep doing what I can do. It's been good to me. It's been good to my family. It is still good to me. So I, I can't get into all these other things. Everybody's got a cause they're willing to die for. But I, I know for a fact that my dad, when he went from uh, Lawrence, South Carolina, he was one of three men that were killed in action out of that particular city down in Lawrence, South Carolina. And he was very clear about his position. He was trained to do what he did. He did it. And I cannot say anything against what the country did after that. And there'll be other people, sir, who have other, other opinions, but it's like noses. That's my opinion. <laughs> it was good to me. It was good to my family. It is still good to me. I'm a United States Army veteran, and I proudly say that. And other people say, well, what about the, the red, black, and green, the Bendera Yataifa? I'm red. I already know about the red for the blood, black for the people, green for the land. I got that, too. Mm -hmm. But you have a lot of people, even in that mindset, that have some things they need to work on. So I, I don't go way out there with that. All I know, sir, I just try to talk to what the military has done for me. Okay. 
How would you describe your experience at West Point? Because a lot of people, that is a very select few to get chosen to go to, to West Point. So how would you describe your experience there? Very intense, very different. Um, but I, what I did though, uh, Brother Lambkin, to be very clear, I just remained true to what I knew. I didn't try to be, as these young people say now, they, I didn't try, I did not try to be new. I, I, you know, you, you're in a different world. Uh, and the real issue is discipline. You know, after all is said and done, the real issue is discipline. And often that was not maybe uh, prominent in our families. Uh, and I'm only dealing with the deep South and how I was raised and what I saw and what I was familiar with. But it was a very intense relationship. Uh, you had a great, at least I did, had a great sense of pride in completing the task at hand. Uh, we become very goal oriented in that type of environment, but also that type of environment is very unforgiving. You know, that if you have responsibilities, then you need to execute those responsibilities. When you say unforgiving, what do you mean? Unforgiving, like most people, some people use the analogy close enough for good government work. What does that really mean? Well, I say to you, I'm going to be somewhere at 1900 or 7 p.m. I show up 1945 or 1905, or I don't show up at all, and I don't call you to say, you know, Brother Lambkins, I'm sorry, something came up. For whatever reason, that's the way people operate. Unforgiving. Your word, and, and, and the kids use it. Your word is your bond. Mm -hmm. You hear people say word. Well, you ought to be a man of your word anyway. The Bible has said that a good name is rather to, to be chosen. I choose to be, you know, what I am. I need to be accountable to someone else other than myself. The military, at least for me, trained me to be disciplined about my interactions with others. Let's transition to you being a pastor because that's extremely important because that's God's work. When did you receive that calling to become a pastor? When I was uh, 12 years old. I wow. remember playing. Oh, I knew I was going to be a pastor. The issue, sir, was being trained. And, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, so I, and, and it wasn't a spiritual calling. And remember, as I said earlier, we were so very poor that the only man that I saw who was doing real good was the pastor. He had the Cadillac, he had the big belly, because whenever people had him over to their home, they would always put the best food out, the chicken and all that. So it wasn't a, a spiritual calling like that. But as I matured, I realized the awesome work that's required, you know, by that office. So what so what age was it when you transitioned to the spiritual part of it? I want to say I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s. Was there something specific that happened or? Yes, sir. What happened was uh, a gentleman, uh, he's now since deceased, uh, uh, Brother Bill DeWeese. I remember uh, as an army officer going to him for some support services. And I remember he had this gospel track. And what it is, it shows an individual 
how to become a Christian. People got a lot of things that they want to say about that, but he took me straight to the Bible, showed me this track, gave it to me, and said, uh, Mr. Payne, if you were to die right now, where would you go? I said, heaven. He said, well, how do you know that? I said, because I'm working with this group and I'm doing this, I'm doing this, do that. He said, can you show that to me from the Bible? And I got quiet. I said, no, sir, I can't. He said, let me give you something to read when you get a chance. So I've always been an infinitesimal reader. I read everything. I read it for a year, year and a half, and realized that I was lost, meaning I did not know Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And then what ended up happening, a year and a half later, I saw him coming out of the E-ring of the Pentagon, and I said to him, I said, Mr. DeWeese, I need to talk to you about this booklet that you gave me. That's what I referred to it as. He said, okay, anytime. Was God would have it. God had him become my first-line supervisor. Long story short, I walked into his office and asked Christ to save my soul. Mm -hmm. I became a Christian. That was what drove me to saying, wait a minute, now I need to go to school. Now I need to, you know, get the training because a lot of the uh, ministers may not have the, the training for that office. And I'm not saying I'm the only one with the training. Different pastors are trained differently. And then based upon what they believe, often they'll go to those schools or some, particularly uh, here in the South, because I'm in South Carolina now, the man say he was called of God, he picks up a Bible, he just starts a church. But it's a process that one has to go through. Why was it important for you personally to get the training? Because like you said, there's there's people, a lot of preachers that, you know, they say that was just God's calling and they just start reading the Bible and then they begin to preach. But you said you wanted to be trained. So why, for, why did you feel you needed to be trained? Because of what I saw, sir, indicated that somebody didn't know what they were talking about. Because the way I look at it, if truth is what it is, if, if Brother Lampkin says it, John Doe says it, I'm saying it, what is the basis of that truth? Then I remember asking one pastor that if we have the truth, well, why do we have 15 different messengers with 15 different messages about truth. And I realized that one, as the scriptures record, study that showed thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And a lot of ministers often do not know how to rightly divide the word of truth. So I knew, just like being a soldier, as you well know, you've been in the armed forces, they take people from all walks of life. Mm -hmm. And in basic training, they make, you, they make you into a soldier. If it's that important to the military to do that, the same thing with doctors. Just because you may know a little bit about extra strength Tylenol, that doesn't necessarily make you a doctor. That doesn't necessarily make you a banker because you're good with numbers. Uh, as we used to say in the South, you know how to wide numbers. Make, wide in numbers does not make you an accountant. Every aspect of this life, we have to have training to go to the next level. Often in the ministry, 
people say they're called, all of a sudden they pick the Bible up, but the other aspects of understanding the doctrines of the Bible and what it does say, what it does not say, how involved all of that is, Brother Lampkin often is woefully short. At any time going through the process, did you question if you were on the right path? Yes, I did. Plenty of times because the schooling was a four-year school. It took me seven years. Wow. It took me seven years and I stayed at it because I believed that was what God wanted me to do. Uh, you know, writing and understanding scriptures, but uh, it, it, the word we use is systematic theology. How is all of it tied together from Genesis to Revelation? And what's the relevance of the text? Was the text just written for me? Was it written at that time? How do I apply that in 2022? And understanding those dynamics makes a great deal of difference in the theology of that, uh, that minister, that he has to know why he believes what he believes, because there are about plus or minus 250 religions in the world. Mm -hmm. So if, if I'm trying to reach people for Christ's sake, I best know what I believe and I best know what I do not believe. Because you had those failures, but you were able to persevere through them. Do you feel like that made you a better pastor? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Because what it ended up doing for me is, is look the average person in the eye and say, you can do it. Well, pastor, I can't do it. Yes, you can. And now remember, when well, I remember, you don't know. I had seven children with my wife at the time. And we still have seven children, 26 grandchildren, three great grandchildren. And then I had one, two, three jobs and I was soldiering and all the things I had to do while going to Bible college. I was going to Bible college Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, makeup class was Saturday. I had a bus route of about 45 children. Uh, I was a deacon. I was an usher. I was a Sunday school teacher. And I rode the bus with the children that we brought out of Southeast. And we took back to Southeast. And I took my family. We lived in Clinton, Maryland. We stopped to the Eddie Leonard's there on Good Old Road, get something to eat, and then go back to the evening service and get up Monday and do it every, uh, do it all over again. I did that, sir, for seven years. So unless a person has more going on than I did, I'm saying that anybody can make it. And what God does do is the testing of the metal can, can show the strength of the person that needs to be on point. I don't know if you can answer this for me, but I hope you can. Have you ever, have you and your wife ever talked about like what that time period was like, like what kind of struggle that was? Because three jobs and you mentioned three jobs and doing Bible study and going to church. That was a lot. And considering that was your commitment, she, she basically was tied to it. Am I, am I saying that correctly? You are, sir. You tell you saying it correctly. Go ahead. Okay. So how how was her how was she doing this process? Did you two talk about like the commitment that you signed up for that she that she now became a part of? 
We never talked about the commitment. Only one time in all of those years did she ever say anything to me about that. And that was when I said to her uh, that I was going to just quit my job and start the church. And she said, quit what job? Now, we were making deep six figures, had the Brady Bunch home uh, in Alexandria, Virginia, you know, right there before Old Town. We were the very first home that was being built. I mean, on and on and on. So if I was driven by the affairs of this life, we had everything you could imagine. And then I just walked into my wife and said, honey, I'm going to give all of that up. And so then I looked, though, that that was bad decision-making on my part because I look at the consequences of how it impacted my family. It impacted them in, in, in a lot of different ways because that level of commitment, sir, requires the grace of God. Mm. No matter what you say, and people talk about, I just did it. No, well, I just did it is not the answer. I had... I did not realize until years gone by the impact that it had on her and all of our children and yea, now even our grandchildren. When you told her your decision, what did she say? She said, okay. She said, you sure God called you? I said, absolutely. She started packing the things up. So we got ready to move. And in 30 days we moved, we moved out of a million dollar home and started living in a rental property. Wow. Absolutely. And we dumped all of our money, which was you know, definitely not against uh, good counsel, but we dumped all of our money into the ministry. Starting a church is not a game, sir. Mm. You know, people look at the very large churches that are out there and you can name them, whether it's First Baptist Church of Glen Arden, or you look at uh, what's his name? Creflo Dollar, TD Jakes. I mean, there, there are some brothers out there doing some big things, but that is a different kind of focus. When you're the only one that's in the church with your family and others on a Sunday, and the offering is $150 a week, and you know you put $125 in there, your wife put the other $25 in there, that's a different kind of discussion, sir. I paid the rent for our ministry. I paid it because we, the church people just do not give that kind of money when you initially start a church. Yeah. And I had to learn that. That's what I ended up learning. What would, what would, what was your, what would have been your decision if she didn't agree with you? If she had had strong resistance, if she had strong resistance, I'd probably be divorced now. Because, see, I did not have the wisdom, Brother Lambkin, to back up. So, you know, as you know, they teach in the military, you keep moving forward. Yeah. Keep moving forward. So I was prepared to give it all up. We give her up, too, which would have been stupid or, you know, ill-advised. Stupid. You know, no, 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 no. God created three institutions first. He created the family first. He created government then the church. And a lot of churches have it inverse. They think you're supposed to uh, work yourself to death so that that man of God can, in fact, enjoy the fruits of your labor. I said, no. I remember asking the question in Bible college. I said, well, at what point do I have to spend time with my family? No one could explain it to me. 
and God had to teach me. I said, absolutely. That price is too steep. The ministry is not more important than my family. Not at all. So if I had a young person through a pastor, I want to do this, this, and this. I said, son, you better make sure that God called you to do it. Secondly, you better make sure that your wife is 100% behind it. Not 99, three quarters, 100%. When the times get tough, and they did, Brother Lampkin, get tough, I started realizing some things. You know, I might want to make sure that God called me, not me calling myself. So how did you come to the realization that God did call you? I came to the realization because just about when I would get ready to give up, God, as I call it, he would have a Red Sea experience. Like we talk about Moses standing at the Red Sea and God parting the Red Sea and the nation of Israel went through the Red Sea. It might have been hell. It may have been financial. It could have been any number of things. And I realized that the hand of God was still on me to do what he called me to do. I'm going to back up to something you were saying about um, family's priority and making sure you spend time with them. Correct. But church is running the church is so time demanding. So how were you able to balance that time if you were able to balance it? Good question. And I like the way you phrase it. I did not balance it until later in the ministry. I nearly lost my wife. I nearly lost all of my children and my grandchildren because I only knew one gear, dead straight ahead. And most people are not made that way, as you well know. Mm -hmm. Most people do what they do and then they keep it moving. But in my case, I would not back down. Some things I just needed to back up and regroup. I didn't do it. And it really put a strain, places a strain on the family. There's a lot of responsibility for a pastor um, because, you know, we look at ministry as saving souls. So at any point, did you feel like overwhelmed with pressure to deliver the message, like deliver God's word? I felt, it's a good question again. Thank you, Brother Lampkin. I felt overwhelmed when I would knowingly compare what I was doing with someone else who was making it. As I mentioned, like the First Baptist Church of Glen Arden, who doesn't know about it in our local area? Very large church. Uh, I was on a radio broadcast many years ago, and one of the ministerial staff members said, well, they have over 150 different ministries. He said, 150 different ministries? I said, ma'am, you're running a conglomerate. I said, that's all <laughs> like a business. You know, uh, you talk about a person, uh, you know, not patronizing him, but everybody knows T.D. Jakes. He has an event down in Atlanta that may draw 100,000 people. The town I grew up in was only 10,000 people. (laughs) So he's got 10 times the number of people in my town at a convention to hear him speak. You hear about others uh, that may have an illustrious uh, presence. They got Learjets, they got Gulfstream, they got this and TV ministries. But the Bible says where two (laughs) or three are gathered together in thy name, I will grant their request. 
So I had to back away from looking at others, not that the others asked me to look at them, but I looked at them. I had sin in my eye. I wanted my church to have, you know, the pastor's car parked out front. And I wanted custom suits and all of that. And yes, some ministers, that's why they're in what they're doing. But I had to back up to God called me, like you said, to preach the gospel. And that means if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, not that I have to have size, but the Bible says two or three are gathered together. Two or three, he still recognizes that as being sufficient. At that time, uh, I had 30 members in our church. All of them were my family members. Wow. That's fact. That's fact. So I'm not talking about pie in the sky. I'm talking about I had to really back up by the grace of God and look at my life in light of one scripture. Two, what did he call me to do? Three, I'm in Southeast DC. And yes, people can do what they want to do with their money. But in the same vein, you're trying to teach people to do what is right by God when all they've looked at is how many ministers have taken advantage of them. Mm. That's a different kind of thinking, sir. And I had, to, and I balanced that in many things that I try to do or not to do, because there are people always looking at what I do because I'm a minister, I'm a pastor, I'm a reverend. So if I'm going into a place ordering the most expensive, whatever, or doing whatever I'm doing, and then people want to quote the scripture about we need to take care of the man of God. I, folk, I got that. But a lot of what I did, I did it before going into the ministry. So whatever I had, I had it. And I did not use the ministry to build me. I'm to build people through the ministry, to help broken home, to help people that are downtrodden, who may not necessarily understand everything I'm saying, but they are faithful. That is a different kind of thinking, sir. You, we talked that you talked, you mentioned like this mega churches, like the big, huge churches, the, the pastors who are, you know, let's be honest. They're, they're basically public figures now. That's correct. Do you think that's hurt the church overall? Yes. Yes. I'll say it before you even finish this. Just, yes. I am a man of God answerable to God. I don't answer to the president. I don't answer to the congressman. No, I do not believe in a pastor, pastor in a church versus running for office, become a congressman. He's going to have to compromise himself. My focus is my understanding, my understanding personally, the highest calling I could ever have in my life is to answer to God for the character of the people that I'm going to give an account for one day. That's my understanding. They said, well, look, I can be more effective because I got the ear of the president. I disagree. I'd rather have the ear of God. That's going to do more for me and for the people I serve than it is for a group of people who change, just like 45 did. He disrespected all of the clergy and everybody running down behind him. And you saw what he did, exactly what he did. 
And then in turn, they wonder why he didn't do it. Well, he doesn't respect you as a man of God. If we look at the Old Testament, the man of God will come in and say, look, this is not right. You're going to answer to God. Here's why you're going to do it. And if you don't do it, here's what God's going to do to you. That's my interpretation, sir, of scripture. So my thinking is I'm not interested in being a politician. I'm a pastor. I am a reverend. I am a minister. I'd rather, and as I said to someone the other day, I said, you know what? They can talk all day long. The person who's got the last word at the gravesite is the pastor, not the politician. The person who's still doing marriage, as far as I know, are pastors, not the politician. And that in turn, the one thing that I enjoy most is when I walk into the community I serve and they look up and they say, there's Pastor Payne. Mm-hmm. They know I'm not trying to sell them anything, get anything from them because I love them and because God loved me first. I want to touch on something you said because it actually transitions to a question I had. You said something about the last, like the last word before somebody leaves. And one of the things, one of the responsibilities I've seen you have to do is deliver a eulogy. Yes. When someone passes away. Yes, sir. How how do you do that? Because let me first let me let me let me say let me ask you, do you have to let me ask? Do you have to know the person before you do the eulogy? No, you don't. You I've personally been, don't. I'm, I'm talking no, about you personally. No, no, you don't personally. No, I do not. Uh, but but I don't need to get up in front of people, sir, and professionally bury the person. What I mean by that? Well, John Doe was a good guy. He was this, he was that, and all of that. And come to find out, John Doe was nowhere good on no stretch of the imagination. A eulogy is based upon speaking well of someone that I know. I've buried people that I did not know. But what I did do as an opportunity to present Christ, to say to that family, the member that is there, to those visitors that are there, to say, you know what? All of us is going to go that way one day. The question is, are you ready to meet God? And when you ask that kind of question of a person, no matter what state they're in, that's a point blank question. And and there's no way of wiggling around that. If I know the person, then I can talk about, well, you know, this brother did this or this, you know, God forbid, I'm not trying to ask something to happen to you. If somebody says, well, you know, Brother Lampkin, blah, blah, blah. I said, wait a minute. No, no, no. I sat and talked with Brother Lampkin. I talked with his wife. I talked with his daughter. I know his mother-in-law. I know his family. And I know what they did for me. I know what they did for our community. I know what they've done for other people. I can talk well about that because I don't need notes. The the best Bible people are going to see is your life, Brother Lampkins. The best Bible. And if they look at that, they'll know what I'm saying is true. Even if I'm giving a eulogy, I need to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Because there are plenty of people out there that know whether or not I'm telling the truth or not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the truth. Absolutely, it is, sir. You because you, I know because I know you personally. I know the amount of work you have, the amount of work you put into the community, the amount of time you invest in people. You send out text messages. You send out encouragement. You do a lot of things. But I have I have to ask because the reality is there's no way that people can 
give the same amount of love and support and energy you give because you give so much to people. How do you make peace with that? I make peace with it because I said one day I'm going to stand before God. He's going to ask me a question. What did I do in his name? Then it's going to stop. Well, I just sat back and I tried to help the one. And like Jesus said, the one that needs help is not going to keep coming to me about help. You just do it because I'm, I personally am looking towards an eternality. That eternity is a real place at a real time. And that because of that, I feel that I need to do all I can do. Dr. King said it first. That's where I picked it up from. I want to have lived a committed life that if somebody picks that telephone up and call me, I'm on my way. If a child falls off the side of the road, my job is to pick them up and keep them pushing down the road. Or like most teachers, and I'm sure you've gone to school like I have, you go back to them, you thank that teacher for being there for you, for helping you with your assignments and things of that nature. So in my case, my job is to point them to the cross. That's my job. I'm not there for any vain glory. I'm not there for them to give me anything because they'll give me grief. And, and on that same note, uh, when I had a man come to the church, after all that I tried to do for his family and everything, he came to the church to try to kill me, put the shotgun to my head, pull the trigger. And obviously, Brother Lampkins, I'm talking to you about it now. There's a God in heaven. Wow. That's fact. So if I was looking for a trophy or a plaque on the wall, forget that. That's not what it's about. It's about me looking. I set my affections, the Bible says, the things above, the things that are in glory. People say, well, you don't want some pie in the sky? No, I don't, Brother Lampkin. But once I get through eating the pie, I want some ice cream. No. <laughs> I keep pushing. I keep believing that I can make a difference. Like in your life, like you say, I know you, I know your family. You kept pushing. You did not get where God has had you in this station of your life by just sitting around waiting for somebody to give you something. Mm -hmm. And then I use my own life as a testimony to what God can do and will do in the life of anyone. I want to get you out of I want to close out the interview with this because it's a very important question. We talked about family. We talked, and, and you've done so much counseling with um, marriage and family and dealing with divorce, all those type things. Yes. So I wanted to close you out with this. How important was it for you to have the helpmate, the wife that you've had? Uh, primo facial one, number one. If that weren't the case, I wouldn't be on the phone with you, sir. I fall short of the glory of God many times, but my wife was there to pick up the pieces every single time. Anytime they start thinking that I was something and they give me an award and promote me, she was standing there as, you know, when we were in the military, you know, all the kids in their dresses and they all shined up with Vaseline and Bobby socks. She <laughs> Absolutely. But I remember her never complaining one time about me and my shortcomings. Am I the best father? Absolutely not. The best husband? Absolutely not. 
room for improvement? Absolutely. But without your wife, the ministries, the accolades and things are not nothing, nothing at all, because that's what the Bible teaches that, you know, a lot of these pastors might not have a wife, whatever their situation is. They may have a girlfriend. That's another discussion. That's wrong. But the point being, if I'm going to do what I need to do, then I need someone that's going to be there to dry my tears at night, to prop me up when I'm down low, to keep me focused on what my mission is. And clearly she knows it better than I do because she's watching me when people have disappointed me, when people have lied on me, when people have betrayed me, I still have to go home, do what I'm supposed to do as a husband. That does not change that. I am my first calling. As I mentioned to you, three institutions, the family, the government, and the church. I really thank you for taking the time to do this because, you know, I know you personally, so I know every minute what you count. So it's been an honor and a pleasure to get you on the podcast and have this conversation with you. Well, it's my pleasure to serve you, as I said, Brother Lampkins and others. That That's all I understand, at least at this stage of my life, that I, I just got to keep pushing a little bit further. Yes, I'm tired. Yes, I get discouraged. Yes, I get disappointed. But if I can like, what's that song we used to sing in church? This little light of mine, I'm going <laughs> to let it shine. This little light. All I need is a little bit of hope, a little bit of joy, a little bit of peace. And you know what? It makes this living what it's worth every single day. Well, amen. And we're going to continue to keep you in prayer so you can continue, continue to be a blessing to all us. And again, before I close, I want to just say thank you again for all of you've done for me and my family because it's, it's been a lot and I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate that. It's just like my wife's mother would say, give me my flowers now. Definitely. I can smell them. I can touch them. I can enjoy them. Give me my flowers now. Thank you for your kind remarks. Because sometimes in the struggle of ministering or serving others, and that's all ministering means, I'm a servant. I'm there for you that, you know, you say, well, is this really worth it? You get the phone call at 11 o'clock at night. Is this really worth it? Five o'clock in the morning. Is this really worth it? Well, you're standing there when that uh, individual's loved one take their last breath. Is this worth it? A child you invest, you know, a lot of time in, they go off and do whatever they do. Is it worth it? Yes, it is. Christ died on the cross for my sins that God loved me for Christ's sake. That's a different kind of thinking. So I try to balance that, sir, with all that I do, but I thank you so much for your kind remarks. Man, and, and again, I thank you, and I wish you all the best moving forward, and I continue to keep you in prayer. Hey, please do, and if there's ever another opportunity, you know where I am. I'm somewhere in the country, at least. <laughs> <laughs> you give me a call. I'll figure out how to get on this telephone because we need to be consistent with whatever we do, whatever we say. And the best, the best we can do is to live our life in light of eternity. All right. Amen. And on that note, we're going to end this podcast. I want to take this time to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. I truly appreciate your support. 
You can follow me on Instagram at conversations underscore with underscore Lamp. My Facebook is also conversations with Lamp. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Again, thank you all for listening. Have a great day.